This is Jamie Pride and welcome to episode 8 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Everyone, my name is Jamie Pride and thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. Janine Garner is passionate about connected leadership and building high-performing leaders and teams, about unleashing the brilliance in individuals to achieve extraordinary results through networking, collaboration, and influence. Janine is a partner at Thought Leaders Global and is the author of the best-selling books, It's Who You Know and From Me to We. She is a regular columnist in the Huffington Post and several other leading Australian business publications. Prior to running her own company, Janine held various senior leadership roles at Oriton, Ralph Lauren, Citizen Watches, Sainsbury's and Coates Vela in the UK. Her clients today include Hewlett Packard Enterprise, DXC Technologies, CBRE, EY and Westpac, among many other 100 ASX listed companies. In this interview, Janine talks about her decision to leave the corporate world and the ups and downs of that journey. We also discuss at length the value of building networks as a leader and how teams can be more effective. Janine is a leader in her field and I really hope you enjoy the interview. And today I'm joined on the podcast by Janine Garner. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, thought leader, author, extraordinaire, speaker, how did you get to where you got to? Tell us your story. God, it's a long one. How long have we got? (laughs) How much time do you need? Um, certainly none of it was planned, to be honest, in terms of where I'm at now. I was your archetypal traditional career chick, um, born in the north of England. Um, I I can, yeah, Leeds girl. I can ride a tractor, drive a tractor, shear sheep, collect eggs. That's pretty much where my life started. These are all excellent skills that I'm Uh, sure you're putting to use. I know. And, uh, so you grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm and I grew up in a very traditional uh, Yorkshire family Yorkshire. where the women stay in the kitchen and the men go out to work. <laughs> now, and knowing you as well as I do, I'm sure that that did not go down very well. No, and it's interesting, isn't it? From an early age when I look back, I was absolutely determined to prove that uh, women are equally as good as men. So, uh, it's, um, Especially at shearing sheep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so was it a sheep farm? It was a sheep farm and a chicken farm, a free-range chicken farm. No way. And we had orchards and all that sort of stuff. And I pretty much started my life in a market selling eggs on the market stall at no the age way. of eight. Yeah. Entrepreneur from Entrepreneur the get-go. Entrepreneur from the get-go. I can still remember negotiating. Are you sure you want a dozen? Are you sure you don't want two dozen? Upsell, <laughs> upsell. Up oh, no, upselling all the way. So, um, yeah, I pretty much grew up in a very traditional farming household um, I was the first generation ever to leave to go to uni. So Brothers I and sisters? My, I've got one brother. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of those uh, nerdy types at school. I really? was the study person. really hard. I, I can see you. Person. I can see you as a nerd. <laughs> I totally can. Uh, You're still one, a nerd. You're still a nerd. Oh, I am so <laughs> um, The one that was teased in the playground before <laughs> I discovered hair dye. That was me. That was me. <laughs> And, um, and so at 18, I left home and never went back, to be okay. honest. So I left home and went to uni in the Midlands, in the, in, to Birmingham. And What'd that study? was, I studied, I did a bit Bachelor of Science degree okay. in business. You were a total nerd. I was how, how do you get a Bachelor of Science in business? Um, I know, so many people ask that, right? It's a bit you, of a weird yeah. combo. Yeah, you know, I've got an honorary doctorate in science as well. Look at you. Oh, no, total All, nerd. <laughs> yes, doctor. Yes, doctor. <laughs> So, um, so I think the uh, the turning point for me was actually going to uni because that's when my eyes were open that there was a world bigger than, bigger the, farm than the farm and the north of England and and there were other people out there. Mm. Um, I was one of the students that um, went to uni on the back of a full government grant because awesome. the family had no money, and so do you have to pay for uni in the UK? Is that at the time, most people did, but right. I got a grant to go, awesome. so the government paid for me to go. Your tax dollars at work, <sighs> yeah, and look, at it. it's been worth it. All yeah, right. totally. So did that and then um, moved to London and gradually just moved further, further south. So I started, I did, and I started career pretty much as a graduate trainee in a big corporate Mm. and worked, did my, the traditional route of working my way up that corporate ladder. First job? 
First job was uh, first job ever was a newspaper round. You know, I tell you what, I had Charlie Wood on the podcast, and um, he is also from your part of the world, and he also did a newspaper round. Yep. I reckon a lot of people listening to this podcast don't really know what a newspaper it round scary. is. It's my first job too. It's scary oh. facing those dogs and those oh. angry people. And, and pulling the barrel around. Uh, totally. And, and in England you have to put it through a letterbox. You can't just throw oh. it into the garden. You've actually got to walk down to the front door and put it through the letterbox. Okay. Oh, scary stuff. So paper a girl. 11-year-old paper girl. Then worked in a fish and chip shop. Fish and chip. Which chips. I loved. And then barmaid. Like, no, I, I can, I can, I can see you actually. <laughs> of all those three careers, I can see you as a barmaid. First corporate job. First corporate job was at a company called Coates Viella. So mm-hmm. they have brands such as Jaeger, Viella in the UK. So I started there as a graduate trainee, um, spending a year touching base in different parts of the organisation and then landed up in marketing. And that's pretty much where I spent all my corporate career. Yep. Um, building brands rejuvenating brands, launching brands. Um, And probably the first changing point was um, I met the man that is now my husband and came out to Australia on holiday and uh, landed back on the M25 in February in the dark in London and went, I don't want to stay here. Um, I've lived in London and I oh, know that feeling. February M25, three o'clock, it's no, dark and you're it's just depressing. Like, I'm right. So I'm I, over it. I applied for a visa. Wow. Yeah. And like all of your other compatriots. Totally. totally. Apart from I didn't come in on a traveller's visa. I came, I came <laughs> and you, in as and a you, permanent resident. And you're not in recruiting. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I got the visa and had to leave the country within six months. So sold everything. Sold the car. Uh, all my belongings. How old were you the then? Job. I was twenty nine, and I right. arrived in Australia with a backpack. Right. Yeah. In love. In love with a backpack. No job. Nowhere to live. Nothing. And so I spent the first six months in Australia travelling, as all English do, mm. and uh, went back to Melbourne, which is where my brother was living. Couldn't okay. find a job. In fact, at the time, it was fascinating. I sought out some advice from somebody from one of the big four. So this is 17 years ago. Mm. And the advice I got was, Janine, uh, just pretend you don't know the answer to everything and wear some pink. So Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. I can still that remember is, that conversation. Uh, that's, that's, that's certainly one approach. I know. I know. So be dumb. So be dumb. And, and wear, wear something pink. bright and sparkly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm hoping that the corporate world's moved on since oh, then. Slowly, I think. Mm. So, uh, and I'm assuming you didn't take that advice. No, I mm. didn't. So we packed our backpacks again because there was no work in Melbourne at the time and mm. jumped in a van and arrived in Sydney and spent the first three months living on a friend's floor that we'd met travelling okay. and pretty much built career back from there. Yeah. And, you, yeah. and you, you're obviously an entrepreneur now and you've got a, a thought leadership practice. Yeah. But when you got a job in Sydney, you went back into the corporate world first, yeah? Yeah, so I uh, went back into retail, mm. um, into the world of accessories, citizen watches, um, and finished my corporate career at the Oriton Group. So I was group marketing director at Oriton, looking after the Oriton and Ralph Lauren brands before I left that life about eight years ago. Has it now. been eight years? Yeah. So there was a turning point. So you had spent, you know, a fair amount of time and effort and investment in building a corporate career mm-hmm. and then you decided to make the leap. Yeah. What was the motivation? I don't think I can pinpoint one single motivation. I think it was a culmination of things that um, resulted in me finally making the leap. Um, I started really looking around and questioning. Interestingly, when I look back over my corporate career, Um, That entrepreneurial spirit's always been there. So every single job I did, um, I would push boundaries. Um, I would look outside the box for ideas. I'd do things that people hadn't done before. And I would probably do things that traditionally would maybe take five years to get done because I'm very much that quick mover, get shit done, Mm. move forward quickly. And what it meant was that I moved jobs pretty quickly. Mm. So every two years I got bored. I needed something new. Um, Which but, used to be frowned upon, but I think now is 
pretty normal two to three years yeah. in a row yeah. is considered but then it wasn't. No, yeah. then it, then, then, it it, wasn't. then you were like oh, somebody who moves around a yeah, fair bit. Totally. Like, can you explain why you're moving around a fair <laughs> yeah, bit? Yeah, why? And, and and so you weren't getting what you wanted. So I think what was happening for me is I so I was working full time and I had and still have three children under five, mm. under six at the time. Um, and I was starting to – life was crazy. Life was mental. I was traveling the world um, with my work um, on a great salary, had a great wardrobe. Um, my husband well, also working had – for Oriton, yeah, I'm ashamed. Yeah, Ralph Lauren. Uh, <laughs> traveling. And my husband was also working full-time and we were juggling a very young family of mm. three kids without any family or support around. So mm. life was pretty mental. But I loved work. The interesting thing, though, was that each child had brought its own learning. So um, when I had Flynn, um, who is now almost my my almost 15-year-old, um, I'd literally only been in a corporate job in Australia for probably a couple of years. Um, we were on not great salaries and we were trying to build life in Sydney. Um, and we just bought we just bought our first apartment. And um, I remember going back to work. He was five months old. Um, my husband took three months off. Mm. And I remember literally at one stage going, I am falling apart um, right. because I had no support. I was holding down this job full time. I was trying to give to the CEO, my team, suppliers come home try and be a great mom try and give husband time and I literally was on the verge of a of a nervous breakdown and I remember walking into the CEO at the time and saying we've got a choice here I either leave or I go part-time yep and um he subsequently agreed to the part-time piece and you think I'd learned but by the time I had my second child Taya um, I was still crazily trying to prove myself at work. I've got this, um, looking back, I've done a lot of personal development, but I was definitely a prover. Prove that I'm good enough, prove that I'm good enough, prove that I'm good enough. Right. And so all through uh, being on, um, uh, interestingly with Flynn, I was still at work when I went into labour. So that's how crazy I was. Commitment. Commitment, well, stupidity actually, <laughs> not commitment. The second, with my daughter, on, I was on, two months into maternity leave and I, whilst on maternity leave, had created the strategy for the business, gone in to do a meeting with her, with me at two, at two months, half day strategy meeting, got the budget signed off, decided, <laughs> I said to the CEO at the time, oh, I just need to feed her before we get in the car and whilst I'm feeding her, it got made redundant. Are um, you shitting me? No. So. <laughs> like that is timing. Total, total timing. As you can appreciate, lawyers were having a field day and wanting me to, to go and do stuff about it. Far but at the time, out. I just said, no, I need to give my energy to these kids. And I'm a massive believer in what goes around comes around. Um, but that was with the big wake-up call for me of going, you have to maintain your boundaries. You mm. have to protect your time and you have to work out your non-negotiables. And so when I then was back, I was still back in the workplace at the time and uh, the Lane family for Oroton Group sought me out and um, I went for coffee and by the end of that coffee they'd asked me to come in to do some work. Okay. And I said, yeah, sure. So I wrote this crazy proposal, which essentially was I'll come in, I'll do a three-month project between the hours of 10 and 2 because I'm still breastfeeding and I'm taking Monday and Friday off and it's going to cost you X. Mm. And they said yes. And you're like, uh, should have asked for more money. Should have, should have asked for more money. <laughs> um, and that turned into um, a full-time job and that was where I ended up as group marketing director. So I finally experienced maternity leave with my third child, mm. um, took 10 months off and yeah, it's way too long. Yeah, way too long for me. And um, so, so, and they, so you, so you, you made the leap. Not even then, right? So what happened was, um, as I said, as I was touching on, life was crazy. Um, I was one like Jason and I, my husband, were one of those crazy couples who sits in bed, the kids are sick, and looking at who's got the most on as to mm. who's going to stay at home. Um, there were three things really that made me make the leap. Um, first was I was starting to tap into the world outside my corporate career, um, starting to go to various uh, small business networking events. I remember going to an event at CBA and coming across um, 
individuals that had the fire in the belly. Um, that there was something that was just keeping them going. They had this hunger and it didn't matter if they didn't have cash or time. They were passionate about what they were doing and I realised that I'd lost that spark. I could do my job brilliantly but I'd lost that hunger. The second thing that sort of supported where I ended up was I met um, Abigail Disney. Mm. Um, We sponsored her to come out and I was really lucky to have a private lunch with her. And I remember her saying to me, Janine, you don't have to climb Mount Everest. You simply need to choose to be a brick in the wall of change. And then the third thing was I came home from work and we were trying to do that proper parenting thing with phones down, have a conversation with the kids at dinner. And Taya, my daughter, who was five at the time, um, asked me, why are you so busy? Mm. To which I said, well... It's about earning the money and I've worked really hard to get here and it's so you can have the clothes, the toys, the holidays, et cetera, et cetera. And then she turned to me and said, but why are you so unhappy? Wow. And out so, of the mouths of Out of the mouths babes. of babes. And so what I realized then at that moment in time was everything that I had been working to prove, essentially that women can have great jobs, they can have careers, they can raise families, they can reach leadership positions, it's it's all possible, was not actually what I was messaging to my kids mm. because all they were seeing was a tired out, exhausted mum that fell asleep on the sofa at the weekends, that was grumpy, that really wasn't happy and that was attached to her phone and her work. And I realised yep. I had to do something about it both for my daughter and my son. And so that really was the trigger that set everything off because I reached out to um, – I was feeling I was feeling really lonely. Um, I was feeling like I was giving to everybody else but I wasn't actually giving to myself. Mm. And the thing that was missing for me was that cerebral challenge, that mm. intellectual challenge. And I thought to myself, there's got to be other awesome female leaders out there like me. And I literally put a call out and invited eight incredible female leaders that I looked up to in Sydney and invited them for dinner. And that's where the business LBD group started um, with a casual dinner for eight people. Um, And at the end of that, everyone's like, this conversation has been so refreshing. This is awesome to have smart conversations where we're not talking about mother's guilt, where we're having really strategic conversations. Can we do it again? Can we bring a friend? And essentially, that is where the idea for LBD came from. So I started doing the costing and realized that there was a business in it and decided to pack in my six-figure corporate salary and leave and start something up that I believed in. So, wow. Um, So Little Black Dress, LBD. Yes. Tell us, what is it? So LBD Group essentially is a network for uh, female entrepreneurs, female business leaders, uh, female game changers. Um, It's intentionally cross-functional, cross-industry, cross-industry type because I'm a massive believer that when you get that diversity of thinking around the table, magic happens. Um, We launched seven years ago on my 40th birthday. I've just given my age away. Mm. And it has gone from one dinner a month in Sydney to now running across Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth. Wow. Um, And we are testing um, in international markets and it's just grown and grown and grown. Um, And it's really the essence of it has proved what I have always believed, that together we can actually do so much more, um, that connection is paramount to success and that we really need people around us to make us more successful. Mm. Um, And what I'm seeing more and more now um, with the other work that I'm doing is it's getting increasingly challenging in business overall, in entrepreneur land, in big corporate Australia, and people have lost the joy of life. People are busy, 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 and they're running on empty. And so this this importance of connection, of taking time out to stop and to reset is so important, not only for yourself, but to also explore those opportunities to grow yourself and grow your business. Mm. And so... Obviously, you do LBD, uh, written two books from yeah. Me to We and uh, To You Know. Yeah. Um, 
I we know each other through thought leaders. You've you've got essentially what a thought a thought leaders practice. Most people on this podcast wouldn't know what that is. In terms of your mainline business, yep. describe it for me. So, in terms of thought leaders practice, um, that journey started probably about five years ago. Um, about two years into LBD, I was starting to get asked to speak, um, to get asked to mentor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is why I say it's all quite accidental where I've ended up. It's certainly not planned. Um, and that's where I came across, and I was starting to explore how do I take this further. I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm. I'm out there and I'm I'm speaking about what I believe, but there's something in this, and that's where I came across. Um, Matt Church, who's the founder of Thought Leaders Global, um, and he challenged me to to write the first book mm. uh, from me to we, and um, essentially that launch of that book tripled everything I did in terms of revenue, leads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what I do now is I speak um, on subjects around how do we unleash uh, brilliance within uh, leadership and within teams uh, through the power of building effective networks that work and collaborating more effectively. And I run a lot of training programs in corporate Australia, um, which are essentially about building high-performing teams that are future fit. Um, and a lot of the work I do is around getting leaders fit for the future um, in that it, it is requiring a different skill base. And I love what I do. I've managed to create a practice uh, where I, my husband left his corporate career in 2016 and came into the business. Um, and uh, we work 40 weeks a year and take the school holidays off. And it was, it was never in my plan. Mm. Um, but yeah, just that um, belief in what I'm doing and that passion in, with what I'm doing is really what's driving everything that I do now. And so I guess I've got many questions for you, but the first is, um, look, I mean, you are now one of the most successful thought leaders in the country. You've got an amazing flourishing practice. Um, in the early days, um, any fear, uncertainty, doubt, how did you deal with the, you know, I've got this great, you know, six-figure corporate salary um, what am I doing? You know, like, yeah, it's all great. I mean, on paper, good, flexible working conditions, be your own boss. Awesome. The daily reality is often very different from that. Um, what went through your mind? How did you deal with that? Um, in hindsight, sort of. Um, oh God, we had, I mean, I can still, before LBD, there were two, uh, businesses that failed, which I didn't share. So I did, uh, invest and start up a organic, don't ask me why, organic baby clothing company and <laughs> lost a lot of money. Organic, no, no, I'm not going to stop you there. Cause I, I thought you were going to say, organic cottons I, and I thought you were going to say organic eggs and stuff and going back to your farming roots. <laughs> no. What's organic? What are organic so baby that organic clothes? cottons? <laughs> right. And, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So, like yeah, ethical sourcing, yeah, etc. Totally. And right. interestingly, I'm like I thought now, babies are organic. Uh, they learn their clothing, but uh, yeah. So looking back now, I know I was looking for that escape route. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so when so into that didn't partnership, go, that, didn't that didn't go, go well. well. Lost a lot <laughs> of cash. Um, I then, uh, when I was first looking at, when I first left corporate to set up LBD in its infancy on the side. Uh, developed a marketing consultancy again in partnership with somebody that was an absolute farce uh, and again lost cash um, but for some reason through those times it never actually really bothered me it was like okay right how am I moving on how am I moving on the, the, the moment that scared me more than anything was probably about 18 months uh, after leaving corporate, so business was in its really, really early days. Um, you know, ca cash was always going backwards and forwards. We weren't making any money really. It, we were reliant on my husband's salary. And that's how we'd planned to, to do the leave while still having three young kids and all that sort of stuff. Uh, my husband's company that he was working for went into receivership. So within 24 hours... Life took a massive turn. Um, we had no income coming in. Um, he, uh, um, to cut a long story short there, his payout didn't happen for 10 months. So we had 10 months with no income coming in, guaranteed income. 
Um, I even got on the phone to the bank at one stage to ask for extensions. We we had an investment property, asked for an extension on that. They said no. Uh, we mo- had to move house. Thankfully, we were renting, so we had to totally downsize and move into a shack. Um, I remember at one stage having conversations with mates going, we, we seriously are probably going to have to camp in your backyard if this doesn't sort itself mm. out soon. What became apparent subsequently is at one stage we had $50 left in the bank, um, which my husband kept from me. But I remember sitting in front of the computer crying my eyes out because at the time the mothering instinct kicked in. Kicked in. It was like we've got to keep this family together and it is about making sure the kids are fine. I'll mm. go back to work. And Jason turned to me and went, no, you won't. You will not go back to work. I believe in you and this is working. We just have to find a way. We got through it, but literally I hustled my butt off. It was every day digging deep, um, really reining in any expenses, uh, pulling in so many favours and just uh, almost um, faking it till I made it in terms of belief of what I was doing. Um and and we got through it. And looking back now, I just go, I don't know how we did. It scared the bejesus out of me because mm. we were literally on the brink. Um, but the thing that kept me going there, in all honesty, was um, the people around me that were showing that what I was doing was offering value, um, the belief around me, and my own determination, to be honest, to, to make it work. And I think the thing for me is, is it's that inner hunger that's, that you've always got to tap into. It's, you know, as Angela Duckworth talks about the grit and the resilience. And that's what I had. Um, and that's probably the scared, the most scared I've ever been. The challenge with it is it raises its ugly head again all the time, every time you get those knockbacks now. So mm. it's uh, a thing I'm constantly having to work through of this fear of not having the money or the security or whatever it is for the family that I've just got to continuously keep addressing. But it was really scary. Um, scary as a family, scary as a relationship. Mm. Um, we had no one around to help us. And... Um, yeah, I seriously thought at one stage we would be camping in someone's backyard. Yeah, and I think it's uh, – look, it's a common story, I think, amongst um, entrepreneurs. The I think there's a fallacy that the corporate world is any more secure. Mm. Uh, like it looks on the surface more secure, but, you know, the reality of the modern workplace is that, you know, you could be made redundant, your company could go under um, – uh, you know, and so the risks aren't aren't that disproportional no. versus the reward of being an entrepreneur. Um, and I guess you know, I think for me in sort of when I do do thought leadership work is is that sometimes it's scary that like the buck stops with you. You have to if you don't write the business, there is no business, right? So you have to go out and sell and hustle. Um, you're building around your brand and it takes time to get momentum, right? And it does. so, it, you know, your practice and, and your reputation's built over time, but, yep. but that takes years to develop. It does. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's why it is that consistency and doing the right things at the right time and just keep doing it. I always say to people, there's an opportunity cost with everything that you do. And too often we focus on the gain versus the loss. Mm. And I think, um, you know, every choice we make, every moment in time that we choose to do one thing or the other, we're giving something up. And there is no doubt in my mind that in the last seven years of getting to where I've got to, I've had to make some tough calls. Mm. So as you know, because you, you've written books yourself, that requires you to say no to social stuff. It requires you to not spend time with the kids. It requires you to not necessarily have all the sleep you have because you've got to write that 60,000 word manuscript whilst mm. at the same time building the business. You have days where you feel like you're in a funk, mm-hmm. but you've got that meeting to make and you've got to find something to dig deep to get there. Um, and for me, I look back and, and this is why people, you know, people say, I want what you've got to go, cool. Uh, it's, it's, it is a 10 year journey. You've got to consistently be doing the same thing, the same messaging, talking to the right people. And literally you're, it is down to you. And that's mm. been the hardest thing for me now to um, really appreciate where the reality is I'm the prime breadwinner in the mm. family now and in the business. Yep. And at t- I've got a newfound respect for those um, 
awesome men years and years and years and years ago where they were working and the wife was at home because I felt that that strange pressure now of going, mm. oh, my God, it's all down to me. I can't say no yeah. because we've got the bills to pay, the salaries to pay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. So it's a to been a total mind flip for me. Um, and I'm really comfortable with it now. And mm. But it's this constant life journey of learning, of growth, of developing, of getting better and better and better. Um and for me, I've just learned everything is a choice. Mm. Um, you own every decision that you make. Um, and with that comes you giving something up, mm. whether it be time or experience or not seeing people or whatever it is. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, you've got to do it. Well, it is. You I can't mean, do it part-time. You've got to dig deep yeah, and do the, it. Yeah, the things that you don't do are just as important as the things that you do. Let's talk about writing books for a second. We have, yeah. the, we have the same publisher. We're both Wiley authors. You've got two. I've got one. Um, how is the experience of writing a book um, we've never really spoken about this before <laughs> yeah, because um, how do you write books? So for those of you who don't know, um, average business book, well, 50, 60,000 words. Um, uh, difference between firstly, how, what's your approach to writing a book? And then difference between writing the first one and the second one because I'm in the process of writing my second one. Oh, the difference between the first and the second is like chalk and cheese. It is, isn't it's it? It's ridiculous. So I think the publishers have this little um, almost sadistic game with the first one where they give you a really short timeline <laughs> to get the <laughs> manuscript in. So I literally had to write the first one in probably about a month. Right. Um and I don't know how I did it, to be honest. Um, I think I've almost wiped that from my memory, that whole experience. The second one was a much more enjoyable mm. experience um, because we had the time. So I tend to probably have a month of really deep thinking time yeah. Um, where I'm really sort of pulling my thoughts together and research and all that sort of stuff. And then in terms of writing it, I am ainly retentive about planning it out. Um, so I, I literally have a wall where I'll stick post-it notes across, which is the structure of the whole book. I'll work out when I'm going to write and I am disciplined about that time. And it could be a 30 minutes here or 90 minutes here. Um, often it's mornings or evenings. Um, and maybe one weekend and I structure it by um, those 60 minutes minute blocks so I'm I have this little routine where I'll make myself a cup of tea I'll then stick on an app called Coffee 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 Tea I think it's called oh, is that the one that's got the black background coffee yeah, noise yeah, yeah. So that's that, legendary that has to go on so I get myself in the zone as if I'm in a cafe and then I'm not allowed to leave I set the timer and I'm just not allowed to leave so your time box, time I box, the writing. Totally, you don't do a totally. word count. You just no. do a time box. I, just do time um, box. I haven't told many people this story, um, but you'll appreciate this. So I got my, um, I got my contract with Wiley in March last year, and the first draft manuscript was due in September. So I had time. I did jack shit for ages. <laughs> um, I, I'm like you. I mean, so I, I spent a lot of time planning, 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 um, and then writing. I had uh, about forty thousand words written. Um, pretty quickly. Um, I had most of the words written and about two weeks before it was due, I nuked it and oh. just started again. Okay. And um, I went to a mate's house in Yarrawonga, um, which for those of you who don't know is sort of on the border between sort of Victoria and New South Wales, um, a really nice place, and sat there and just went, uh, I need to start again. And um, I'm like, what are you doing? Um, and this idea that like, I, I don't know if you felt this, um, it's never good enough. Mm. Um, you're kind of reading it going, oh, this is complete shit. Um, other people are going to read this. I don't know if you went through that self, mm. self-doubt process. Yeah. Oh, continue. I think there's nothing scarier than putting your thoughts on paper. Um, I engaged an external editor to help mm. me and be my accountability buddy. Me too. Um, but that moment when it goes mm. to me was I found the scariest ever because you're putting your heart out, you're putting all your thinking, all your heart out there mm. and you have no chance to change any of it. Mm. And as, as proud a moment as it is to see your book on the shelf, for me it's equally scary because you're like you're opening up the doors for the wolves uh, to come and get you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's I actually a, quite a, enjoy writing. Yeah, me too. It's a rewarding process. But I, I will say this. You've got a second book published. I'm, I'm in the process of writing one. Um, the second one is so much more enjoyable. Mm. Um, having been through the process, I just go about it differently. Um, my planning's different. Um, you know, the, the I think the the depth, um, the thinking around it is. Um, I just I think having just gone through the nerve wracking process of sort of going through a publishing process the first time, now I'm sort of like much more concentrating on. 
um, I guess, enjoying the process. Yeah. Was that how you found oh, your definitely. second book? I enjoyed it so much more. And this is where I'm, I'm now working on the thought process for book number three. And I'm quite looking forward to when I decide to start it mm. um, because I do enjoy it. I get really engrossed in it. And as you said, there's something really amazingly fulfilling about creating something that you're putting out into the world it is it is awesome to see something on the shelf with your name on it it's it is it's a bit that's a bit egotistical to say but it, it is a it's a bit of a mammoth effort to get it yeah. out like it is it's just yeah. hard work yeah. so um it's who you know is yes. the second book yes um as you sort of mentioned previously your practice is very much working with um corporates and enterprises around building relationships yeah. talk to us a bit about that um and your views on i guess what it takes to be successful and, and how you talk yeah. to that about your client with well, your clients. I think we're living in a world that is more connected than ever before. And yet what I'm seeing and experiencing is there's a massive amount of disconnection. Um, so whether you be a leader trying to run a multi-million dollar organization, whether you be in startup land, whether you be a graduate trainee trying to find your first job, whether you're being a mom going back into the workforce, um, people are feeling increasingly lonely. There's the stats on, as you know, from from the work that you're doing on founder fitness on, um, you know, CEOs are unhappy and feeling lonely or out, mm. out of the world, out of this world. Um, and when I look back over my corporate career, it's interesting how the work that you do is a culmination of, of your life so far. If I look back over my schooling and my corporate career and everything I've done since in my own business, it's all been about the power of building really strong relationships. Mm. So whether it be my time at Oriton and building relationships with the media and, and actually changing the way that we approach things or whether it be events or whether it be pulling together sporting teams at school or organizing that party I've always been about bringing people together and what I've um, found from the research that I did for that book is those people that are successful have a small tight diverse network of people around them um, that are their sounding board that are their cheerleaders that are their pit crew um, that are teaching them to become better than they are right now. And so the the concept of or the, the IP that I've created and the free framework I've created in, in It's Who You Know is essentially challenging this concept of quantity quality, and yep. talking about quality, challenging the perception of networking being hard work and actually saying the networking that we've all been trained to do is actually really transactional. And the purpose of that transactional networking is list building. It absolutely is about trying to get as many people to hopefully do a deal and to build the business. But there's another part of networking that isn't being talked about. And this is what I've spoken about in the book, which essentially is how do you build the network of you? Mm. Um, who are the core people around you that are pushing you further than you can ever go yourself, that are teaching you mastery of your craft, that are holding you accountable and that really care for you. And I um, suggest in the book that it starts with four key people to ultimately be 12 and that's it. And the IP, that the framework that I've shared in the book is something that I've been doing for myself over the years. I've tested it, it's what I train on and I've proved that it works where if you can actually get really clear on what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve over the next 12 months personally and professionally and then really sit down and go, who are the people around me that are helping me get this? Um, and get really tight on those and then work those relationships, develop those relationships, deepen those relationships, leverage those relationships, you will absolutely achieve the goals with those key people. The work that I'm doing in corporate is taking that concept of building the network of you as an individual and going, okay, now how do we work that internally to build teams that hum, to break down silos? Mm. Um, and how do you build these relationships within your clients? So within your clients who are the key people, People to ensure that you get that repeat business, you get that next piece of business. So it's really changing and challenging the approach to networking and going transactional networking as we know it is a must mm. and add to it what I'm calling this transformational networking where it's about you taking control of the core people around you um, that are helping you achieve your goals, that is the added piece. Because it's very counter to this idea of it's all about quantity, it's all about mm. quantity. Um, and, and so your your advice, and I think people, it's an amazing book, people should pick it up. Um, the, the idea is start with four yep. 
Um, so firstly, get clear on on your objective. Yep. Um, and then start with four, and then expand that out to a maximum of twelve people who are essentially your advisory board. That's right. Right. And so you're overt with those people mm-hmm. in sort of saying, "We, you know, this is I want your help." Yep. Um, and and in terms of composition of the twelve, like what what's the what's the kind of rule of thumb for those who haven't read the book? So. First of all, yes, start with what it is that you're wanting. Um, It's incredible with the work that I do how many people haven't got really clear goals for themselves. Mm. Um, I challenge people to get clear on what they want to achieve in their careers financially, um, their important relationships and also their bucket list Mm. uh, because we seem to have lost that balance. Mm. Um, Everyone can talk about their KPIs for work or what they're trying to achieve in their business, et cetera, et cetera, but people have forgotten the joy of life too. Mm. And I know the work that you're doing and and talking about at the moment with Founder Fitness, the important part that those other pieces play in terms of success. So Mm. most people get challenged with that straight away where I go, okay, what are are your three key goals for the year in each of those four quadrants? Um, The people, it starts with four four types of people. And essentially, yes, they become your board of advisors, they become your marketing machine, they become your intelligence bank. And the four groups of people are the promoters, which are going to absolutely – um, stretch you further than you can ever go yourself. The pit crew, where we're going to help you care and connect. Yep. Uh, the teachers, who are helping you know more, and the butt kickers, who are helping you do more. And within each of those quadrants, there are three types of people. So there are people like the architect, who is making sure you've got a solid foundation to achieve your goal. There are people like the truth sayer, mm. who I hate my truth sayer, to be honest, because they are the people that really understand my values and will challenge me by going, well, Janine, you talk about this, but you've just done that. I go, I know, I know, I'm sorry. They kind of keep you honest, right? Yeah, they totally keep you honest. Um, People like your cheerleaders, people like your influencers, people like, I have a um, archetype in there called the lover now. As I say, this isn't your husband, your wife, or the person you want to spend the night with. This actually has to be someone corporately, business-wise, that really loves you for what you're doing. Mm. Um, And so those are the personalities. And then I've actually flipped it too and talked about the shadow archetypes, the people that somehow we hang around with and keep in our world that are actually trying to burn our dreams, undermine us, keep us small and label us. Um, and so essentially through through the book, I'm giving people a framework to take control of surrounding themselves with the right people that are going to help them achieve whatever it is that they want, career, business, etc. And um, I, I use it myself. So every 12 months, every January, I sit down and I work out what's my year going to be all about. What am I going to try and achieve in each of those four quadrants and who are my network Mm. um, over these next 12 months? And people move in and out. Yeah, it evolves, right? totally evolves. And that's the other thing I see, Jamie, in that too many individuals keep hanging out with the same people. Mm. And the problem is that keeps us small. Um, I was working with a um, a, a senior person in a big property company here in Australia and she got the job of her dreams, general manager of retail finance. And about two weeks after she got that job, I put in a call to her, how are you doing? And she went, oh, busy. And I feel really lonely. It's weird. I, I just don't know how to operate at this level. And what became really apparent is that she had to actually evolve her network. She had to start mm. finding people that could teach her how to operate at that level, how to play the game at that level, how to have those conversations. And I see it all the time that we hang out with the same people. Um, You know, we see it in startup land. Startups Mm. hang out with startups. Great. Mm. But actually we can learn from other industries and we can earn, learn from sports people and we can learn from big corporate game players. Completely. And it's this, uh, this, this willingness to embrace the diversity of thinking, um, to challenge your own thinking, to enable you to find that opportunity. Mm. And to me, this is why it's absolutely critical. I think it's amazing. Um, as a tangential note, I think um, you were right. I mean, I think a lot of people don't get clear on what they want. The other thing I find, which is which is also an interesting um, sort of anecdote, is a lot of people ask to meet me um, and talk about startups, and that's a whole other thing entirely, like pick your brain, which, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of concept. But I've, I'm surprised at how many people um, meet and don't have an ask. 
Oh, uh, so, so they so so I'm like, how can I help you? And they're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And um, yeah. and I and I and I'm, I'm it's, it's it's not an odd occurrence. It's actually occurred many many times where um, I've had an opportunity to meet somebody, and I, and I try and be really generous with my time and, and meet as many people as I possibly can. And I've got somebody who's got in front of me, and they might get a, a half an hour of coffee, and they just don't have an ask. Yeah. I, st- I talk in the book and I've uh, spoken a lot about get clear on the one question. Mm. Um, so this is this is the challenge of the LinkedIn's of this world and Facebook's of this world or whatever it is, however you connect, is we just seem to think that pressing a button to connect is all that matters or, mm. as you say, can I have a coffee? And one of the pieces of advice I say to people is get clear on your one key question. Everybody is busy and you have to respect people's time. Mm. So with that, what's the one question you want to ask? Take your time, do your research and ask that question. And every single time I'm constantly asked for coffee too and like mm. you, I, I want to help people. But I go back now and I'll go, yeah, sure. What exactly do you want to talk about? And it's incredible how many people do not respond to that question. Yep. Um, and to me, it, it signals a um, lack of respect for your time. Mm. Um, it actually signals they haven't really thought about why they want to meet you. Yep. Um, and it's, it's a waste of everybody's time. So I couldn't agree more. And I think more people have to get clear on the help that they need because if i know you're the same jamie if you can't help you find someone that can yeah totally and and like it just focuses the conversation if you go look i need help with you know connecting with an investor or connecting with a product person or connect like i'm like great here's something i can tangibly act on it was like hey tell me like you know some stuff i'm like i don't know stuff um so i I mean i love your work how does that translate into the corporate world because i i I couldn't agree more in, in the sense that um, look, there is no such thing as a large corporation. It's ultimately filled with people, which is they ultimately work in teams. Um, and the nature of the workplace is changing. Um, and as, as you sort of mentioned, people want more out of it. Um, but also collaboration is more important than ever. And I guess so you're taking the concepts of that personal advisory board and saying, okay, how do I develop deeper and more meaningful relationships at work? Yeah, totally. So the the – interesting thing that I'm seeing in organizations is that, you know, we know the world's moving really quickly. Change is never not there. Um, it's at the same time, resources are being stretched, if not cut. And so the people that are there seem to be working busier and busier and busier. And the natural place that people go when they're busy is they start regressing into me. What do I need to do? What do I, what emails do I need to answer? What meeting do I need to go for? Tick box, tick box, tick box. And the challenge with that is it just becomes very process oriented. Mm. And unfortunately, I'm seeing in, in quite a few places that people are just doing. Mm. They're just doing stuff and just getting through the day, doing a lot of stuff, sitting in a lot of meetings and not getting anywhere. Um, and the leaders that we're looking for for the future need to have a new operating system because this speed isn't going to get slow down. We know that people need to be digitally astute. We know that they're going to have to be globally aware. We know all of this stuff. And yet the leaders that are coming through are struggling because they're trying to work out their place within organizations of how they can look after themselves and be themselves in a changing world where the people that they're looking up to are literally just still directing traffic down down mm. the hill. Um, and so this, this piece of connection and collaboration is becoming even more important. I was working with a client only a couple of weeks ago and as always I go into the room about an hour before to set up and I had four separate conversations with senior leaders and all of them were on the verge of tears. Yep. And now to me, that's not, that's, that's not good enough. Um, to me, that isn't a scalable business. To me, that doesn't support the longevity of the business. And so a lot of it, and I, I ended up having a rant with this, this, the team at the poor people that were in the room. Cause I said, why, how come I can walk into this room on day two and know everybody in this room? I've learned all your names. I know who's got kids, who's getting excited about this, who's doing this on the side. And equally, I know the pain points. Mm. And you're all working with each other. 
what's going on here? What's what's wrong here? And mm-hmm. so for me, a lot of the work I'm doing, yes, is about teaching people to tap into themselves, to lead themselves first, to unleash their own inner, inner brilliance, to be the leader that they want to be, to get that balance right between leadership impact and influence and their ability to operate from a place of conviction, but also to manage their own match fitness. Because mm-hmm. if they can't lead themselves, how uh. can they possibly lead organizations and teams into an uncertain future that is busier than ever before, uh, whilst at the same time managing family and life outside work. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's where our work intersects because for me, um, look, although I've had to work on relationships for ages. I, I'm not naturally good at it. Um, but I'm a believer that um, you kind of have to put the oxygen mask on yourself, take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And I see a lot of leaders in both the entrepreneurial sphere as well as in the commercial sphere um, who aren't taking care of themselves and so if you're not as you say match fit so if you're not physically mental and emotionally well you're you're in this um defensive mode right so um you tend to just get through it right so you're like gonna do the emails gonna do the process i'm just gonna click it out um you you invest just enough in the relationships to just get it done um but you have no headspace capacity to to give um, and certainly to develop anything deep and meaningful. Mm. And so, um, in in my world, um, I'm I'm very I'm definitely you know when I talk about founder fitness and building capacity versus capability, I think the same is true in the corporate world where Absolutely. you've you've got to you've got to have self mastery, um, and you've got to take care of yourself before you can lead yep. effectively, and certainly before you can develop meaningful relationships. Absolutely. And and the other part of this is have the time to think. Mm. Um, I was at a dinner last night, and one of the conversations. We were talking about burnout and how to manage burnout in teams. And one of the guests at the table was talking about when you're in that space, you want people to help. And yet you're in that space running around like crazy and people probably are offering to help, but you just can't see it because mm. you're so in your world. And I you've think you've got zero perspective. You've got zero perspective. And I think it is that, that piece around capacity that you talk about, absolutely, not just to manage yourself so that you can lead others, but also to think. Like we mm. need leaders to stop and think, to yep. to be able to cogitate, to be able to look at who to bring in to collaborate with, to be able to explore, okay, who in this organization do I need to connect with? Um, we need people to start being, not just doing. Mm. Um, and to move from you know, this 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 place of just I'm in my own place and I'm running around like crazy. I'm actually operating on zero gas right now, but I'm mm. still going, hey, look at me. And we all need to slow down to to move a little bit faster. And the leaders that are that I'm seeing that are starting to do this are the ones that are going, I am not contactable before X time. Yep. I leave to go to the gym. I'm spending time with my kids. It's those organizations that are allowing people to go on annual leave and making sure their emails are deleted. Mm. And it's all, it's not about, to me, it's not just a tick box of a well-being program or go and have no. yoga or I've sorted some massage out for me. It's there's too much externalizing of solutioning for this. Mm. And I think what we've all got to do is start taking some ownership again of the fact that we have one life to create as much impact as we want on the planet, to build the businesses that we want to influence and inspire future generations. Mm. And if we are not taking ownership of being the best at that, mm. then we're not going to do it. And I, I just see this this burnout eventuate. I don't think we've even seen the worst of it yet. No, and I don't think so either. And I think the big word is sustainability because um, I think anybody can run really short sprints um, and, you know, you kind of get into these cycles where I see in the corporate world sort of like people are like run, run really, really hard, burn themselves out and then go, oh, I now need to take four weeks off or sick leave or I'm stress leaved or whatever. Or even the bigger version of that is, I'm getting out of the corporate world entirely and I'm going to go and run a coffee shop, right? And because they're just running in this very unsustainable mode where you can do these short sprints, but you can't do that over 10, 15 or 20 year no. career. And so, you know, for me, I think it's a future of leadership. I think you make a great point. It gives you space. I think by having that view of self-care, it gives you space to think. I also think it gives you space to be more self-aware, 
um, time to reflect. Um, it just gives you that buffer. Um, I know you use the word non-negotiables. I think you're, you live by the same principles because I tried to send you an email recently and you said I'm on holidays. The, you, I got on to respond. I got to, like, don't send me an email. I got, I'm, on, I'm on holidays. I'm not going to answer your email at all, um, which I absolutely love, right? How do you take care of yourself? How do you live that value? It's an ongoing education of myself, to be honest. It's, mm. it's certainly not an easy thing. Because I think entrepreneurs fight <laughs> – they fight the in their very nature it is to be fully engrossed and yeah. engulfed by their yeah. business and it's not natural for them to go I need to switch off no and I think when you're passionate about something too I love what I do yeah um, and I love working and all of that stuff but I've realized now that I have to look after myself to do the best work mm. I can so the thing I've learned is to not beat myself up. Um, to give myself permission. So if I have a day where I'm not doing my thing, so what? It doesn't matter. Um, so for me, how I look after after myself, physical fitness is really important. Um, so I get up at 5.30 every morning and I hit the gym. Um, and that is one of my non-negotiables. And I do it at that time because I can get home and then get my year four child out of bed and get ready for school the other two are old enough to get themselves to school and I can do the mum bit before sending them off to school and if I leave it to the end of the day I'm too tired mm. um I work in sprints so I do the 10 weeks on school holidays off 10 weeks on school holidays off sleep is uber important to me mm. um but again that's a learning thing I learnt to operate on six hours sleep yeah. um and it became my norm. And it seemed to be okay in my sort of 20s, 30s. And I think then when you have babies, you're used to sort of disrupted sleep. <laughs> you just get used to it. Um, but I've realized now as I get older, I need my sleep. But it's it's insane. I literally have an alarm to tell me, get ready for bed. Yeah, Time I, to go to bed. You know, bed. I, did the, I, did the same, I did the same thing, which is like like at 10 o'clock at night, I've got an alarm that goes off that says, bing, like <laughs> you're like, because I know it's, it's strange. I, I need that reminder. Um, for me, sleep is absolutely the super drug. Um, I also think what's, what sort of challenges a lot of this as well is that it's getting better, but historically hustle was a badge of honor. So I know a lot of executives and I know a lot of entrepreneurs that think that motion is meaning and they're kind of all about, well, yeah, I only got two hours sleep last night and I'm working really hard and I'm, you know, hustling and I've got to, I'm sending a thousand emails out and I'm working 23 hours a day. And I think partly that was expected partly it was a badge of honor um and i guess there was a stigma associated with taking holidays resting taking care of yourself it was like what do you mean you, mm. you know you, you're not committed um or you're a slacker um you know if you if you want to um rest and you know my my analogy is you know professional athletes have have uh training cycles they have on cycles they have off cycles um you know they need to rest themselves and i think that you know, uh, executives, entrepreneurs, anybody mm. who's in um in an intellectual endeavor, you know, needs to needs to oh, rest. Oh, totally. I um, and not be guilty about it. No, I was. I interviewed Hayden Masters, who's the strength coach of the Wallabies, um, the other week on my podcast. Great and job. one of the key things he said is talent is is no longer enough, mm. and it is we need to take the training approach of professional athletes into work because leaders have lost this joy of life. They're, they're operating as you would not operate as a world-class athlete. It's not sustainable. And um, interesting, you're, you're absolutely right. I was only talking to someone this week who literally went, I've got seven and a half weeks holiday owing. And I went, what? Mm. Why? Mm. Um, and it is changing. I don't, I don't care. That's stupid. Yeah. That's, that's insane that you've got that own. And I think this is also part of our job as leaders of forcing leave mm. of actually, so that slowing down piece and becoming more self-aware, um, enables you to see what's going on around you of tapping into the, the, you can see the pain that other people into are into. So you can force people to take time off to rest, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, one of the biggest things is learning to say no. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've learned and, and some people aren't happy with me, um, that I do say no, I, yeah. because for me at the moment, the key plates for running for me are the business, well, family, me, business. Mm. And so what that means is any spare time 
I'm putting back into those, which does mean that I'm not necessarily catching up with some friends as often as I was previously, mm. but the family need me right now and I want that. That's what feeds my soul. Mm. So it's those choice pieces um, and saying no and, and going, I'm taking a day off today. Yeah, And I think leaders need to lead by example mm-hmm. as well because, um, you know, if the leader is espousing those values, if the leader's taking care of themselves, if the leader's, you know, taking holidays, making sure they're keeping their, their health um, maintained, you know, working reasonable hours, then they're setting the tone for their team um, and for the business as well. I think that's crucial. I mean, I don't think you can have, you know, when things are, um, I guess, contradictory and, you know, you've got a leader saying, yeah, you need to take care of yourself, but like they never take holidays themselves. Um, You know, it it tends to be, I guess, hollow. Mm. It's going to take, in in corporate enterprise Australia, it's going to take a massive shift still. Do you think, you think, yeah, where do you think we're at in terms of maturity? I think it's we've getting, still got a long way to really? go. Yeah. yeah, I think when I look at the businesses I work with um, that are working on a global scale mm. uh, where, you know, individuals are working across time zones, mm. um, demands and edicts are coming from the top overseas, um, it gets really hard when you're significantly down that pecking order to say no, mm. to switch off and to turn your email off. And this is why, uh, to me, it is, it's a bit like that concept of charity starts at home. Of you've, you've got to start somewhere. You mm. can't expect it to change from the top. You've got to set the example and protect the people to the left and the right of you and under you and slightly above you. Mm. Because if we can do that, we'll all, all succeed. Mm. Entrepreneurs, it comes down to your own personal uh, determination to put yourself first Um, and to realize that as an entrepreneur, if you're not driving the business, if you're not thinking, if you're not being strategic and instead just hustling and reacting, Mm. you're not going to, you're not going to get there. And, you know, the bigger piece of all of this is it's not just us that suffers. It's the families, it's the kids, it's the marriages, it's all of that stuff. There's a huge flow on impact. Yeah, it's it's huge. So I do think, I think there's some organizations that are doing great jobs Mm. and we all know them because they're heralded in the, in the media. Um, but I think some of those traditional uh, big old companies have, mm. have got a lot of evolving to do because they're ticking the boxes of the well-being, but yeah, it's not necessarily following through. Yeah, I mean, my, my take on it is that certainly the conversation started and so I think that's the beginning. Like, so, you know, how do you um, even begin is to really raise awareness, have the conversations. I'm not convinced that wellness programs, they sort of tick a box like, yeah, we've got a wellness program, so that's okay, but, you know, we're working our staff to death. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's it's up to individuals, uh, individual leaders um, to start a movement around self-care. Um, I think in the entrepreneurial community, I had Alan Liao on the podcast, who's an amazing young entrepreneur, and one of his investors said, um, would you be willing to die for your startup? And... I was I was flabbergasted uh, and a very senior venture capitalist and um, it really threw him because he wasn't prepared to die for his startup. Um, now it wasn't. I'm not even sure if it was a a metaphorical question. I think it was. Uh, you know, would you literally die for your startup? Um, and uh, it shook his self confidence. And I think that you know there has to a conversation has to be started about the fact that if. Um, you know, these short-term gains by running teams really hard aren't sustainable in the long term. And I think that's for for us, for both corporate Australia as well as um, for, you know, the innovation economy around around startups. Um, Yeah, sure, you can squeeze a founder or an entrepreneur and get, you know, some short-term gain out of that, but longer term, they're going to burn out, and you're going to have to replace them, and it's and it's going to be uh, it's going to be painful. I could talk to you for hours, um, but let's finish off with some rapid fire questions. Oh, love these favorite book. Can I have two? Yes. So my classic favorite book is The Profit by Carhill Gibran. Absolutely love it. I always re- reference it. Um, if I'm in a moment of where do I need to go here? So that's my classic favorite. And my favorite currently is Shoe Dog. Phil Knight loved that book. Okay. Um, iPhone or Android? iPhone. Favorite app? I don't think I really have one. Really? Yeah. I don't really have one. Are, are you, do you have a phone addiction? No. Uh, 
who are you asking? If you're asking me, I'd say no. If you're asking my kids, I'd say yes. Hey, you know, I saw this awesome um, YouTube, uh, like it's like a, um, a a channel, and they, it's called Phones Down, and they put somebody in a room for 20 minutes with their phone upside down and a glass of water in an empty studio, and they film them. And it's hilarious. Watch it's what to, wa- to watch these people um, not touch their phone for 20 minutes. Um, if you had to choose between bacon or cake, Bacon. Mm, I'm a bacon person. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? No. Yeah, okay. Favourite podcast or TED Talk? Favourite TED Talk, um, I love Drew Dudley's Everyday Leadership TED Talk. Um, awesome. It's literally six minutes and he talks about the impact that we can all have every day and we don't even realise we're having it. Um, if you could invite somebody to dinner, living or dead, who would it be? Ah. <sighs> I think I, oh, I'd i love to have a conversation. So the intellect in me would love a conversation with Nelson Mandela mm. um, to really understand. I'm fascinated with mindset. I'm fascinated with the difference between average and awesome. Mm. Like what is it that – What's the expert? What yeah, what's the expert to what makes somebody tick? And for me, I'd love to explore for him like – what kept him going and that power of forgiveness piece. Mm. And then for a fun dinner, I'd have to have somebody like Robbie Williams, Pink, <laughs> Elvis Presley and Madonna around All the table. All at once? All at once. Egos around the table. That would It'd be, be so an, much fun an and an probably an drinking games. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that would be a lot of – that would be a party that you have a massive hangover the next day. Um, who is somebody you'd like to thank or publicly acknowledge? Who have you got gratitude for? Who do you want to shout out to? Um, I have to, and it's it's probably one of those classic ones, but I have to shout it out to Jason, my hubby. He yeah. is an incredible man that um, supported me through my corporate career with young kids and I couldn't have done what I did without him doing that. Um, he's a very hands-on dad um, and he continues to support me and always puts me on a pedestal and makes me feel and feel absolutely amazing. Mm, uh, could, nice. I know Jason. He's an awesome dude. Um, where can people find out more about you? I'm everywhere on digital. So yeah, on, on the interwebs. Yeah, on the interwebs. So au is my website or you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook or Twitter. And on Instagram the, on everywhere. The, on the gram. Uh, so from me to we and it's who you know, both published by Wiley, both in all good bookstores, Booktopia. Uh, and Audible. You and, can listen to uh, me more if you want to. You, and you actually, you read, you read your book? <laughs> I did. I'm I so read good it to do you that. Know. Oh, wow. It's hard work reading I, your own book for two days uh, in a cubicle. I could, it's hard I could, work. I hate I, I hate reading my own book. For someone with an attention span oh of an app. I've got, got to do an audible version. That's interesting. Um, th- I think you're an absolute inspiration. Thank um, you. I love your work. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's hard um, to, to spend an hour talking to me. Uh, it's been but fun. It has been a blast. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. I hope you enjoyed Janine's interview and hopefully she's motivated you to think more about deliberately building your support network. I highly recommend her books, so check them out. Today's episode was brought to you by The Founder Lab, who deliver courses and programs to help build better founders. You can find out more at www.thefounderlab.com.au. And if you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out www.jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and subscribe to make sure you get all the latest episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself. 